Hello, and welcome to our COVID Minutes podcast series from UT Health San Antonio. Our goal is to bring you timely and concise insights and updates on COVID-19 by interviewing our UT Health San Antonio faculty experts who are very involved in COVID response. These on-demand podcasts are aimed at healthcare professionals and are ideal for clinicians on the go and others who want to stay up to date. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Thomas Patterson, Professor of Medicine, Infectious Diseases, and Chief of Infectious Diseases at the Lozano Long School of Medicine. Dr. Patterson, we've come a long way since March when we had no specific therapies for COVID. Remdesivir was recently approved. You were involved in the Adaptive COVID Treatment Trial, or ACT-1 trial, leading to this approval. Tell us about the study and when should we use remdesivir and when is it not helpful? Yes, thank you very much. We have come a long way. We've had a lot of COVID since uh, March and the spring uh, in San Antonio and here across the United States and the world, as you all know. Uh, remdesivir is the first uh, antiviral drug approved for treating COVID-19. And it's important to realize its benefits and its limitations in that setting. So we were involved here at UT Health San Antonio with our partner at University Health System uh, in the ACT-1 trial. This was a trial supported by the NIH. As you said, it's the adaptive COVID-19 treatment trial. And it's a platform that allows new therapies to be added on for study uh, throughout the course of these treatments. So ACT-1 was a study that looked at remdesivir and compared it to placebo. That was really important, we felt, because there were a lot of therapies being talked about at the time uh, based on non-controlled trials that subsequently didn't show efficacy, like hydroxychloroquine, uh, which was initially suggested to have benefit, but then subsequently and randomized trials for either prevention or for treatment did not show benefit. So it was really important, I think, for us and our patients to have a trial that we could look at uh, therapies that were safe and, and effective for this disease. So in this trial, we looked at patients admitted to hospital, right, for uh, COVID-19. So you had to be admitted to hospital you received uh, up to 10 days of remdesivir in the ACT-1 trial, uh, and you could have patients who were either admitted to hospital off oxygen, on oxygen, receiving high-flow oxygen, or even patients were ventilated or receiving ECMO therapy. And we looked at recovery, recovery times based on improvement in those what we called ordinal scores from uh, the requirement of oxygen uh, levels to improvement at day 15. So it was a short course, which may have impacted some of the results. So these results were released in late April. Uh, here in San Antonio, we began to participate uh, in late March. We heard about our ability to participate at Chosen as a site uh, in late March. And in five days, we had quickly stood up the trial and enrolled a number of patients in the ACT-1 study. Uh, in the ACT-1, uh, again, it was a placebo-controlled trial and the results were pretty clear. You saw overall a benefit in recovery times from 15 down to 10 days. 
And in those patients on the oxygen uh, requirements, not ventilated, uh, but on receiving oxygen from 16 days down to 11. Uh, it also trended towards better mortality. This study wasn't powered for mortality, uh, but the mortality was reduced about 30%. Uh, that's also important, obviously. Uh, it wasn't powered for that because we would have required a number of additional deaths to reach that primary endpoint, which is why it was, was powered to look at recovery time. And that recovery time uh, then was used as the primary endpoint, and that was significant. Well, does that really matter by reducing recoveries from 15 days down to 10? Well, we felt it mattered a lot. Uh, it mattered because patients got better, obviously, right? That's important. Uh, but it's also important to reduce numbers of patients needing to be in hospital while we're having a surge. Uh, and so all of those things we felt were significant clinical benefits uh, in the ACT-1 results. Great. Now, what about the solidarity trial? We've heard, um, you know, mixed reviews about remdesivir from the World Health Organization solidarity trial that was done uh, in a number of countries. And why did it not show a benefit of remdesivir? I think it's really important for your listeners to realize the differences in these two trials. Uh, for one, the solidarity trial uh, is, is randomized but randomized only to therapies that were available at local hospitals. So it wasn't across the board randomized. And it was randomized to therapies that the attending physicians or providers felt that patients would qualify for and would benefit. So Solidarity also looked at hydroxychloroquine. It looked at lopinavir, ritonavir, uh, as well as interferon uh, beta-1 alpha. So it looked at all those and compared them to a single control group uh, of standard care, but not a placebo control group. It also didn't take into account how long patients had been sick. So this trial done in hospitals outside the United States may well have been impacted by that factor. So if patients had a hard time getting into hospital or were disinclined to go into hospital, they might not have received the benefit from an antiviral, but may have been in later states of the infection. And so those are things we don't know, uh, but solidarity did show uh, a difference in, in the uh, overall, uh, they didn't show a difference in the overall uh, mortality in remdesivir versus controls, about 12% in each. Uh, and in the other arms, the hydroxychloroquine, the lopinavir, ritonavir, as well as the interferon uh, arms, uh, mortality was significantly elevated. So in this trial and solidarity, the mortality rates overall were pretty similar, but they weren't really broken out in great detail. We still don't know all those results from a peer-reviewed publication. These have only been discussed so far. Uh, in non-peer-reviewed fashion. So it's a little bit unclear uh, how the patients were broken out. It's important to recognize that in the ACT-1 trial that the patients with oxygen requirements had mortality that were around 4% compared to 13% of those in placebo, so substantially less than the numbers reported in the solidarity trial. So, um, you know, we've learned that uh, COVID is really a biphasic disease, uh, that there's an antiviral phase and then an inflammatory phase. 
So you would expect, and I think we're learning that, giving the antiviral remdesivir early is important to, um, to see improvement in patients. Is that right? What are, when should we use remdesivir? At what stage of the disease? Well, I think that is a really important question. We don't know all these uh, data yet, but it's certainly our impression that just like you would use, for example, oseltamivir and influenza, you'd use that very early. And I think people, you know, across the board, patients and providers alike know that if you're going to treat influenza, you've got to take the influenza drug, oseltamivir, early. The same would make sense for uh, COVID. COVID's kind of rewritten the rules, so maybe we're not totally clear on that. But you would guess an antiviral drug would act more effectively if given early into in the antiviral phase. After about a week of the illness uh, of symptoms, we know that we get a transition to pulmonary phase and then an inflammatory phase. And in that setting, we think that perhaps uh, anti-inflammatory drugs may well be more effective. So the, uh, this adaptive COVID treatment trial or ACT trial now has had a couple of other phases that have been done. The ACT2 trial we were a part of and there's results from that now. Um, what did that show and when will that be published? So we hope the ACT2 trial will be published soon in the adaptive platform of this study. Uh, all patients in ACT Two, as we called it, got remdesivir as the backbone of therapy. But on top of that, we added an anti-inflammatory drug, a JAK-STAT inhibitor they used for rheumatoid arthritis, uh, a drug that's been around a long time, uh, but one is pretty specific in its anti-inflammatory properties. And so the uh, uh, varicitinib was used uh, adverse placebo, again, to show it was safe and effective in that setting. These data haven't been published yet, either in preprint form or uh, in uh, uh, peer-reviewed fashion. We hope that'll happen really soon. A press release has been uh, uh, been released by uh, Lilly, the maker of baricitinab, which showed that the primary endpoint was met. Our group has, uh, which showed a reduced recovery time that was short overall. But our group has also shown uh, in, a, in presentation by the principal investigator, uh, Dr. Beigel, uh, at uh, in, in investigational meeting that in fact, in those patients requiring more high flow ventilation, uh, that recovery was substantially reduced around 18 days down to 10 days. And so the publication will be coming but that would suggest that a more targeted anti-inflammatory drug may well be effective in improving outcomes of these patients. And if you look at the data overall, using improvements in these ordinal scores, that is your level of oxygen requirements, it's pretty dramatic how baricitinib improved outcomes in the overall population in that regard. So we'll look forward to seeing that published and uh, it looks like that may change our practice for hospitalized patients as well. Uh, the ACT2 trial came at, a, at a, what was a good time for us because remdesivir was being allocated at that time and was in short supply. Um, and uh, so uh, we made a great contribution to that study 
and uh, because of the number of patients that you were able to enroll. And can you comment on the race ethnicity of patients enrolled in the ACT trials from our site? And what does our healthcare community contribute to these studies? I think that's also a really important point and one that we're really proud of for our patients and our uh, healthcare team here at UT Health and University Hospital. So our patients uh, have been largely almost uh, not exclusively, but, but by a large majority, uh, a Hispanic. And so it really is important to show that the, these therapies are available and are active in a really vulnerable population. We know that Hispanic people have been particularly hard hit by this virus. And so it's really gratifying that our patients are more than willing. They're really enthusiastic to participate in these trials and that our uh, healthcare teams at University Hospital and UT Health ha have been able to include them uh, in, in this uh, uh, ongoing study. So what about Act 3? We're in the midst of Act 3 now. What is that looking at and when will we know some results from that? So Act 3 again builds on this adaptive platform. So again, all patients received remdesivir as the standard of care backbone of, of treatment. And on top of that, we looked at a, a drug called interferon uh, beta-1 alpha. You think, would that even work? Would it be ethical? How would we do that? Because we know uh, inflammation is such an important part of this disease. Well, it turns out in several profiling studies that uh, looked at genetic predisposition to more advanced or progressive disease, that deficiencies in this interferon uh, beta-1 alpha pathway were present. So we're hopeful that by giving exogenous uh, beta, uh, interferon beta-1 alpha, a drug called Rebif by its trade name, it's a drug used for multiple sclerosis, uh, as an immune modulator is how it's supposed to work, that it may well improve outcomes in these patients. And so that's really something we're looking at as an ongoing uh, line of study. We, we don't give it to ventilated patients or patients on high flow ventilation who didn't seem to benefit according to the Data Safety Monitoring Board. We hope that the patients in earlier stages of infection may well have improved outcomes. Okay, and then what about the role of steroids? Tell us about the recovery trial leading to their use, and what is the right timing to use dexamethasone? Well, the recovery trial did show uh, an improvement in terms of mortality uh, with the use of dexamethasone, and so it's become a standard of care in certain patient groups. But those patient groups would be patients on uh, mechanical ventilation or ECMO therapy, uh, patients uh, on high flow ventilation, or at least receiving oxygen in hospital. Interestingly, in the recovery trial, patients who weren't on oxygen but hospitalized had numerically poorer survival than those who weren't. So we don't give it in those patients. Perhaps earlier in the course of disease, it's important for your own immune system to basically take control all right, and have uh, impact on the outcome. Whereas later in the course, it may well be in the inflammatory stage, steroids are going to be uh, important. One difference though, that I'll really draw your uh, listeners 
attention to was that the mortality rates in the recovery trial were dramatically higher uh, than those in the ACT-1 trial. The, in that study, uh, for example, on mechanical ventilation, mortality rates on the control group were around 40%, 41% to be exact, compared to recovery uh, results on dexamethasone of 27%. But that was almost 50% uh, higher than those patients in the ACT-1 trial. So this study was done most in the UK, uh, and it may well be differences in practices uh, in that population led to those higher mortality rates. So overall, the mortality rates in the ACT-1 trial uh, were uh, around uh, 12 to 15% in the placebo arm, uh, but substantially higher than that, around 17% in those patients in the recovery uh, trial overall. So I, I think we've really, uh, uh, even or even higher than that, uh, uh, so, you know, with that dramatically higher mortality, it raises some question about the optimal time for steroid use. Definitely, it's part of the NIH treatment guidelines to give steroids in patients who are hospitalized, requiring oxygen, or those who are receiving mechanical ventilation. And at your university hospital, we definitely do that as well. Interestingly, uh, trials to look at comparison of uh, steroids uh, versus other immune modulators are being discussed and may well uh, be a way to move the field forward. So we really know uh, whether uh, steroids are helpful or even perhaps harmful in some settings. What is happening with the study of monoclonal antibodies? Do you expect these to be helpful? And when will we know something about these? So monoclonal antibodies are a little bit like uh, constructed plasma, if you will. So it at just like we knew from convalescent plasma, uh, if we don't give convalescent plasma early, uh, in some patients, we're gonna have higher levels of antibodies against uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, than uh, we're giving them exogenously from the convalescent plasma, right? And so in that setting, similarly, these monoclonal antibodies, which we're really hopeful would act like early uh, treatment options, uh, but it seems like if it's not given early, that the effect is not very great. And so a couple of the studies have been stopped on inpatients, including the Regeneron monoclonal cocktail uh, that President Trump received, uh, but also the Lilly monoclonal antibody therapies as well. That doesn't mean it might not be effective as outpatients uh, or at initial diagnosis, but that yet is yet to be seen. And similarly, convalescent plasma, uh, while we do certainly use it on occasion, ha has not really been shown to be effective in randomized trial. The trial that was done was very large, like these other non-placebo-controlled uh, uh, trials of recovery or solidarity. But in, in that setting, uh, we really hadn't seen a benefit. And so I I think it's going to be that we're all becoming a little more cautious about the benefit of convalescent plasma or monoclonal antibodies in patients for the treatment of disease. Now, it may be different for prevention, uh, but those are yet to be proven as well. Thank you. We've been in pandemic mode since March of this year in San Antonio, now eight months ago. Our public health measures are still challenged 
and the disease is still spreading, even surging in some areas. Although uh, in San Antonio, after our summer surge, we were, we were able to get uh, the disease under control with the community cooperation, uh, with masking and distancing. Um, we've made great progress, however, in the treatment for COVID-19 in hospitalized patients. There's still a lot to learn, especially in the treatment of the sickest patients, but also in the treatment of outpatients. One of our biggest challenges, especially early in the epidemic, was testing. We've made a lot of progress in this area, but a lot of questions remain and have emerged. Join us next time as we interview Dr. Jason Bowling, Associate Professor of Medicine, Infectious Diseases here at UT Health San Antonio and Healthcare Epidemiologist at University Health System about testing methods and emerging questions in that area. Thank you.